Well, this afternoon we're going to be looking at the last two articles of the Apostles' Creed, where we confess that I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And as we prepare to do that, I'd like to read from 1 Corinthians 15. I invite you to turn there with me. A few weeks ago we read the first part of this chapter when we looked at the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul goes on in his argument to talk about the resurrection of us, of all people. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of our resurrection. And so we're going to read 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 20. We'll read from verse 20 to 58. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that, that body that shall be, but mere grain. Perhaps we tore some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. 
It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first Adam, man, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those made, who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So far, the reading of God's holy word. This afternoon, our catechism lesson will be considering Lord's Day 22, so I invite you to take your book of praise and to turn there with me. Lord's Day 22 is on page 536 the book of praise, and there we confess this. What comfort does the resurrection of the body offer you? Not only shall my soul, after this life, immediately be taken up to Christ my head, but also this, my flesh, raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. What comfort do you receive from the article about the life everlasting? Since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, I shall after this life possess perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived. A blessedness in which to praise God forever. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus, as we've been going through the Apostles' Creed, we've been looking at the articles of our faith. Because we see this world through the eyes of faith, believing in the triune God, and that impacts everything that we see in this world. 
when we look at creation, we're looking at our Father's world. When the rain that we get today, it's from our Father's hand. And when we look at the church, we also look at the church through the eyes of faith. We saw that last week. It's not just a physical gathering of a group of people, but it's the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, gathering, defending, and preserving His church throughout the generations. We see the church through the eyes of faith. And when we think about life after death, what happens after we die, we also see that through the eyes of faith. We look with eyes of faith to the future. And so the article this afternoon we're going to be looking at from the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. I believe. That is, I have faith that the dead will rise and that there's going to be an everlasting future in the new creation. This afternoon we're going to see that as we look with eyes of faith to the future, that that gives us tremendous comfort. A comfort that we belong to Christ in life and in death. So the comfort of Lord's Day 22 is the same comfort as the comfort of Lord's Day 1. And so we're going to look at Lord's Day 22 this afternoon with this theme. I believe that my future is eternally secure in Christ. We'll see my future life is for all of me. That's our first point. I believe that my future is eternally secure in Christ. So faith affects the way we look at the world, the way we look at the future, and also affects the way we see ourselves. Because with eyes of faith, we see that we're more than just a physical body. We're more than flesh and blood. When we look at our bodies, that's what we see. We see flesh and blood, the physical arms and legs that we have. But the Bible teaches us that we are a body and a soul. Now, throughout the history of the world, there's been many wrong ideas about the relationship between body and soul. And one of those wrong ideas was found in the Corinthian church. I'd just like to start with a bit of background about the Corinthian church. Because Paul is writing to a a group of Christians in this Greek city. It's a a very socially diverse city. It's a Gentile city, and it was a city where immorality was said to be found on every street corner. Maybe you've read the letter of, to the Corinthians and you notice that Paul writes about married men in the church who are sleeping with prostitutes. But what does this have to do with the resurrection, you might wonder? Well, it's because the Corinthian church had a wrong understanding of the body and soul. Because this is what they said. This, they said, your soul is the most important thing. Your inner life, your inner thoughts, your inner desire, your soul, that's what's important. And your body, it doesn't matter. It's just going to turn to dust anyway. And so for the Corinthians, it didn't matter how they treated their bodies. They could have sex with prostitutes if they wanted. It didn't matter because their bodies weren't important. What matters is the soul. And this is the idea that Paul writes strongly against in chapter 6. You can read that later. That the body, he says, is not for sexual immorality, but it's for the Lord. That's what he says in chapter 6, verse 13. And so you can see this wrong idea about the body and soul that it really affects day-to-day life. It affects their life very strongly. They had a wrong idea about the body and soul. And this also meant that they misunderstood the resurrection. It seems like there were some people in the Corinthian church who were saying that there is no resurrection of the body. 
They said that the soul lives forever, but the body simply turns to dust, and that's it. After you die, your body's done. And this is the idea that Paul writes against in 1 Corinthians 15. At first, he affirms the reality and the truth of Jesus' resurrection. We saw that a few weeks back from Lord's Day 17. There's no doubt at all that Jesus really rose from the dead with a physical, a human body. And then because Jesus really rose with a, with a completely human body, then Paul says that our bodies will also be raised. The Catechism says it like this, My flesh, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul. So this is what the Bible is teaching us about our bodies, that they will physically come to life again after they die. It is helpful to note that the Bible does teach a distinction between the body and soul. Jesus says in Matthew 10, for example, don't fear those who are able to kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. So there's a distinction between body and soul. They're not the same thing. And this distinction is what makes a reunion necessary. Because when our bodies die, our souls do not. As the Catechism says, our soul is immediately taken up to be with Christ. We can see this, for example, when Jesus says to the robber on the cross, he says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He would see Jesus that same day. And that's also why Paul said in Philippians 1 that he was not afraid to die and be with Christ. Because when we die, our bodies decay, but our souls go straight to be with Christ. There's a distinction between our body and soul. But there will be a reunion of our bodies and souls. Reunion, they will come back together again. Because that's how humans were made. We were made with a body and soul. And that's how, how humans fell into sin, with our entire body and soul. Sin has affected all of us. Belgic Confession, Article 14, says that when man fell, he corrupted his whole nature. And that's also how we've been redeemed in Christ. He has redeemed our body and our soul. So creation, fall, redemption, all of these processes include our body and soul. And so while our bodies and souls will be separate when we die, they will come back together again, just as they were made to be. And Jesus is the proof of that. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 23 says that by man came death, and by man also came the resurrection from the dead. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So because we're all human, we're all of the seed of Adam, we all share Adam's guilt. We all die in him. But those who are in Christ will be made alive. Jesus Christ was truly a man. He is our new head. He is our new representative. And Christ as our representative has risen with his body and soul. His body and soul are already reunited. And everyone who is in Christ will one day experience this same reunion of body and soul. It won't happen yet, says verse 23. But when he comes back, then all who belong to him will experience this reunion. And that's why we can say that our future life is for all of me, for body and soul, because I belong to Christ completely in body and soul, in life and in death. 
Paul strengthens his case in 1 Corinthians 15 by showing that the Corinthians were already acting as if the resurrection were true. He uses two examples to show this. Verse 29, he gives the example of baptizing for the dead. Now, many, no one really knows exactly what this practice was. It's possible that the Corinthians were baptizing on behalf of someone who had died, which wouldn't have made sense, says Paul, unless they somehow thought that there was going to be a resurrection. So that was one example. And second, he gives the example of himself. Why would he be willing to suffer so much? Why would he allow his body to be beaten? And why would he face death frequently if the resurrection wasn't true? So Paul shows that the Corinthians were already acting as if the resurrection was, because there will be a resurrection and our bodies will be reunited with our souls. But it's not going to be any sort of reunion. Maybe you've had a a high school reunion and you've seen some of your old classmates who you haven't seen for 20, 25 or 30 years, and you realize that some people have changed dramatically in that time since high school. Well, the same is going to be true for our bodies. When they're reunited with our souls, there's going to be a radical transformation. As the Catechism says, our bodies will be made like Christ's glorious body. Many of you have strong and healthy bodies. Praise the Lord. But many of you also have significant bodily pain. I'd just like to mention a few examples. I can think of Mrs. Captain with Parkinson's. Mr. Workman with his walking difficulty. Mrs. DeBoer with her constant hip pain. Pamela Couvret with her hearing challenges. Darren Bosch with Lyme's disease. And many more, I'm sure, live with daily pain, significant pain, physical weakness, and broken bodies. Well, all of these bodies, says Paul, are like a seed. One day these bodies will all die. All of our bodies will die. But then they will experience a radical transformation. A radical transformation. Maybe you remember when you were a kid doing a science experiment and planting a seed in a plastic cup. So you could see the seed and watch in wonder as the seed cracked open and then a green shoot emerged, climbing higher and higher until it peaked its head above the soil and became a new plant. That's a radical transformation. From a dead seed come a living plant. Or the living plant of our bodies. Once all of our bodies are turned into the grave and become resurrected, the living plant is going to be glorious. Planted in dishonor and planted in weakness. Planted with all the uncleanness of our dead bodies. Planted with all the decayed effects of Parkinson's, of Alzheimer's, of old age but raised in glory like Christ's body, like the Christ that Paul himself had seen when he was on the road to Damascus, that bright shining light that had woken him up, that had changed him, blinded him. Like Christ's glorious body, it's going to be different in kind to the bodies we have now. Jesus' seed has already sprouted, but one day there's going to be a great day of sprouting, Seeds that have been sown in graveyards throughout the world, they're all going to come to life and then the reunion will happen with our bodies. Dear friends, the future life for all who are in Christ 
involves this joyful reunion of body and soul. Our bodies are not just material matter that will only decay like the Greeks thought, and so it didn't matter how they treated their bodies, but our bodies belong to Christ. He has bought them with his blood, and he lives in our bodies with his Holy Spirit. This is what we believe concerning our bodies and souls. This is what we confess with the eyes of faith. And this glorious reunion that we talk about is not just a a future event. It's not just disconnected from the mundane reality that we live now, but it actually affects the way we live now because there is continuity between this life and the next. When you move to a new house, there's many things that are different. And And all of those changes can be really hard, but there are small things that do make the move easier. When you put the same pictures on the walls, when you put the same books on the bookshelf, when you have the same comfortable couch, these things are still the same, and they make you feel straight away at home in your new house. We like continuity, don't we? And we're thankful when some things don't change, even when many things do. Well, when we die, there is also continuity. Our relationship with Jesus Christ does not change. Because the relationship we have with Jesus now, it's real. And this relationship is going to continue into the next life. Because Jesus has redeemed us. He's bought us, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood. And he's bought us. We belong to him with body and in soul, both in life and in death. He is our Lord and our Master. And as we live for him, as we submit to him, because he's bought us, Then we experience also the beginning of eternal joy, the Catechism says. We experience the beginning of joy that we're one day going to have when we live with Him. Now, joy is not quite the same as happiness. You could define it as the feeling you have when something really good happens to you or will happen to you. Like when you know that Jesus has redeemed you, that Jesus has brought you to be His. The Catechism states it as a fact. I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. So I wonder this afternoon, do you feel this joy? We all want to feel this joy, don't we? Deep within us, there's a yearning. There's something that wants to be satisfied. We want joy and we want to satisfy our desires. And maybe as, as Christians, sometimes we think of our desires as a bad thing. Our desires are often sinful. They're twisted by sin. And so we often desire sinful pleasures. We can be tempted by our desires for money or for sex or self-promotion. So often our desires are sinful. And that can also make us think that desire in itself is not a good thing. But desire by itself is not inherently wrong. In fact, this is how God made us. He built us with desire. And that's why we have this longing, this craving for joy. This is a remnant of how God has created us in his image for relationship with him. Someone once said that our our longing for joy is like a J-shaped hole in our heart. In every one of our hearts, there's a hole the shape of a J. J stands for Jesus. Maybe you figured that out. 
But when we try and fill this hole with sex or money or work and anything other than Jesus, the hole is only going to grow bigger. We all have a longing which can only be satisfied in relationship with God, in relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the only one who will give us true joy. This is eternal life, says Jesus in John 17, that they know you and that they know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life, joy, comes in relationship with God. And so this is the life, this is the joy that we can already begin to experience now. And we can begin to experience this joy as we live the new life of the Spirit, as we put in the fruits of the Spirit. Romans 14 says that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So the new life of the Spirit, that He works in us, this is how we experience the beginning of eternal joy. One more text, as John says in 1 John 3, that everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. And so as we look forward to this eternal joy, we purify ourselves as God is pure. And when we live this holy life, that's when we begin to experience in our life in our hearts, the beginning of the eternal joy. And so we taste this joy when we serve God faithfully in marriage and we enjoy the beautiful relationship of husband and wife. We taste this joy when we honor our parents. We taste this joy when we serve other people in the church, when we're generous with our possessions. We taste this joy when we spend time in God's word We taste this joy at a prayer meeting, praying with others. And in our own times of prayer, in our intimacy with God, we can taste this joy when the beauty of creation just makes us realize how small we are and it makes us realize how awesome God is. In this life, we have a beginning of eternal joy as we live in relationship with God. This is a beginning of joy. So there is continuity between this life and the next. But it is only a beginning. And sometimes we really feel that, don't we? We really feel how small this joy is. And we long for it to be complete. 2 Corinthians 5 says that in this earthly body we groan, longing to put on the heavenly body. We groan, longing for the day when our joy will be complete and we'll see Christ face to face. But as we have that perspective, looking forward to the eternal future, then we can rejoice now, even in our groaning. As 1 Peter 1 says, that you rejoice in this, though even though you are grieved for a little while by various trials. We rejoice because we know Jesus. And because the trials, the groans, they're all working towards glory. The trials in this life are even working to to purify our faith, which is far more valuable than gold. And so we can rejoice even in our groaning as we taste the beginning of eternal joy and as we look forward to the day we see our Savior face to face. Maybe you've heard of Polycarp. Polycarp was someone who really exemplifies this for us. He displayed the beginning of eternal joy as he faced a martyr's death in AD 55. 
Polycarp was burned because he believed in Jesus. And as he faced those flames which would burn him to death, they told him to deny the name of Jesus. And you know what Polycarp said? This is what he's reported to say. He said, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my Lord and my Savior? So Polycarp rejoiced in the flames. He knew that Christ was a faithful Savior in life and he would be a faithful Savior in death. He knew the beginning of joy that he experienced by knowing Jesus on this earth was going to become full joy when he saw Jesus' resurrected glory. He knew that to live is Christ and to die is gain. So friends, our future life begins already now. The new creation is a future reality, but it's a reality which has already begun to exist in you as the Spirit of Jesus Christ has begun to work in you as His new creation and as you live in relationship with Him. But we'll also see that our future life will be unimaginable. You might be familiar with what they call the Hamilton Mountain. In Hamilton, the escarpment is fondly called by the locals a mountain. And maybe it seems like a mountain if you've never seen a real one, if you've never been to the Rockies or the Alps or any other real mountains. And when I was in Hamilton, I I used to enjoy running up and down the mountain. You could say I experienced the beginning of joy. But then last summer I went to BC, And maybe you've seen the BC mountains. They make the Hamilton mountain look like nothing because there I saw far bigger mountains. They were far more majestic, far more beautiful. This helps to illustrate what the future life will be like. You know, if all you ever knew was the Hamilton mountain, you would never imagine just how beautiful mountains could be. But the mountain in Hamilton is like our present life. We have the beginning of eternal joy. We, we taste the beauty of a mountain. But the mountains in BC are like our future life, unimaginable to us in beauty. There are still mountains, but they far surpass anything that we've ever experienced in Hamilton. And so in the new creation, it will far surpass the beginning of joy that we experience now. The weight of glory that will be revealed in us says Paul in Romans 8, far outweighs our current suffering. In John 17, 24, Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. So Jesus wants us to see his glory that he's had before the foundation of the world, his glory which was hidden when he came to earth, his glory which his disciples glimpsed on the Mount of Transfiguration. His glory that he now has with his resurrected body. We're going to see that glory. This is the glory your loved one may already experience now. And this is the glory we all look forward to in the new creation. We will be with our Savior Jesus. We are united to him in life and in death. In fact, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 15 and 50, that it's so glorious that our current bodies just simply won't do. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These broken, these frail bodies, even though they may seem glorious now, as you're watching the Olympics, maybe our bodies seem 
glorious, but they simply won't be suitable in the new creation. The new creation is going to be that glorious. And we're going to need those changed, those transformed bodies that Paul has talked about earlier. This is going to be the glory in the new creation. And there's going to be glory, and there's also going to be victory, 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? But thanks be to God, he has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we will be victorious over death. The curse of sin, the curse will be gone. We won't have to fight against sin anymore. And don't you often feel weary in that fight, brothers and sisters? Your flesh, Satan, the world. Sometimes it all seems so attractive. It's sometimes so hard not to give in. But in the new creation, we will never have to fight anymore. We won't have to fight against our sinful nature. We will have the final victory over it. We'll be living in a state of blessedness, as the Catechism says, a blessedness in which to praise God forever. We'll be victorious over death. We'll also be victorious over all the effects of death, over disease, over frailty, cancer, all the aches and the pains. We'll be victors with Christ, our living and resurrected Savior. And so, brothers and sisters, as we look at the life to come, the resurrection and the life everlasting, as we look with eyes of faith to see that, this is the comfort that we can experience because we belong to Christ. And this is also a present reality, a reality which allows us to begin, to taste the beginning of eternal joy, to taste that the Lord is good. We belong to Him with all of our beings, with our bodies and our souls, and we belong to Him in life and in death. Jesus is my sure defense. Why should I then fear or waver? All my hope and confidence rests on Him, my risen Savior. Amen.